What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smarter, more inspired, or more more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hey, hey, I think this episode makes today's guest the most frequent appearance on the Emulsion podcast, and for good reason, right? It's my honor today to have Ray DeLucci on the show again. He's the host of the Line Cook Thoughts podcast with experience from the Culinary Institute of America. He's got an executive chef title under his belt, and recently a career transition during the time of COVID-19. I know he's not the only one in 2020 having to adapt and make changes and think on your feet and change things in your life. So we talk about all of that in addition to him prioritizing his physical health and losing, if I'm not mistaken, almost 80 pounds, which is just outstanding. In the world of chefs creating content, I really respect Ray a lot because he's got his head on straight and he's a wonderful asset to the industry. And I'm really excited for you to listen to our conversation. Small, small disclaimer that I want to add uh, and semi-apologize for. I think Ray and I were both having weird internet issues during this episode, so if you notice any audio tweaks, it's because, uh, at least for me, what I can say about my internet is that my wife was also working from home during the time of recording this, and with her job, she's got this fancy Wi-Fi splitter thing that she creates her own network so she can get on the network and keep her patient's info secure, blah, blah, blah. So it was in service of that, which is good, but then it kind of sucks because there might be some choppy bits in this episode. Anyways, regardless, I thought this episode was stellar. If you can get past the hiccups, there's tons of value. So here we go. Yep. Okay. I'm good. Okay. Yeah. How's it going, dude? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Just, I, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to get into that. I want to hear about all the new job things and writing online, but in light of uh, taking inspiration from another podcaster I listen to who has a really unique format where he ha- he lets his guests ask a question of him at the end. I was, and you can, as someone who creates content and hosts a podcast yourself, I was thinking through, because this podcast is called The Emulsion, of testing out a new kind of like start of the show called First Drips, where I ask the guest if there's like, a question or a topic that they definitely want to cover sometime in the interview. And then I like leave a note on it and then like bring it up later in the show. First off, do you think that's a good idea? Second off, is there something that you want to talk through in our conversation? Um, yeah. Um, begin, I don't know if you're putting, are you going to put this on YouTube? I think, well? so. Yeah, like, I think light, so. Is it light? I mean, I know I got this glare from this light up no, here. I don't good. know if you want me to fix that yeah, or not. It looks good. It's got, it's like uh, angelic vibes. Um, think <laughs> yeah. um, of a good of a topic I wanted to get into. Um, yeah, I mean, I was gonna frame it kind of as a why you know we have great followings at restaurants, but why do why does an Oreo have more of a mass following than any restaurant in the country? So like Nabisco Oreos, that's a company, right? Nabisco makes Oreos. I think it is Nabisco, but why? I think the point being why um, 
what I'm starting to get an interest is like what consumers are eating on a regular basis. You know, the average American person, not it's saying their average, what they do, but like just if you were to ask anyone, you know, they everyone knows what it is, and there's a tremendous following behind those brands. So why, you know, why is it that people in food kind of, you know, we shake off junk food and whatnot, and for good reason maybe, but I, I think a lot of missed opportunity and not going into those brands. So kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. So I'm already noticing a problem with engineering this as the start of the show, because if I want to come back to it, it's a little awkward for me to like change the subject after you've just bought, brought this up. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I really want to get into this right now, but if I'm going to say that I want to start the show in a normal way, that's not a smart way to do it. So maybe um, maybe better to do it like in the middle of the show. Anyways, I want to talk about this. I'm staring at my uh, like the wall that's the backdrop of all my videos. And I have a big Kikoman sticker. And I say that because Kikoman did like this collaboration with a streetwear brand for like hypebeasts that just want to like rep the soy sauce company on their t-shirt or whatever. And the shirts actually looked really, really cool. And I think they made some socks and some other stuff. But I think when you're talking about like restaurants... So when you say restaurants that have a big following, are you talking like McDonald's, like Subway... Or are you talking about like, you know, um, I don't know, French Laundry, like Peter Luger, uh, stuff like that? I guess you could throw any restaurant in there. Um, but, I mean, you get out to McDonald's, like, what do more people know, McDonald's or Oreos? Um, but I guess more so kind of just like what we as an industry focus on, like what a cook would focus on, what, I, what my 17-year-old self would focus on and what would think think would be super important um which restaurants are super important but also totally disregarding the idea that people have affiliation with brands outside of just restaurants so i guess we're, we're, we're gonna we can talk more or less though a smaller restaurant than mcdonald's it could be a, a chain you know there's a lot of chains like size chains um or groups restaurant groups but i wouldn't say something as big as mcdonald's just for this, the argument and kind of the importance of what brand affiliation means so i think there's a couple things that I think about with that. It's so the restaurant that comes to mind that has like small cult following in the place where it exists. And then like maybe one concentric circle outside of that is Joe's Kansas city barbecue. And I think you, you're actually flipping it the other way. Like if you went to the average person on the street in you know, pick a city in America, I think that they would, and you showed them a pack of Oreos. They'd be like, I know what that is. But if you show them the menu of Joe's Kansas City, I don't necessarily think that every as many people would know as the people that know Oreo. So I think there's a lot of people that do understand Oreo, but I think that there's a couple of things that, um, like, do you want to be known as the cookie that does everything, or do you want to know be known as what Oreo's like tagline brand forever, which is like milk's favorite cookie? Like that's been their tagline forever. And so to like expand beyond yeah. that almost like dilutes this main tagline, which is like, if you want a cookie to eat with a glass of milk, you should think of Oreo first. And so does expanding outside mm-hmm. of that and becoming more well-known and becoming this pop culture thing. But that, that also being said, the amount of like crazy flavor combination, I, I mean, like they took a, a, a book out of Lay's cookbook because a uh, playbook because Lay's did like 
these uh, crowdfunded potato chip flavor ideas, and they just like went, you know, across the board with like buffalo and blue cheese flavored chips, and just these like crazy things. And then you look at Oreo does the same thing with uh, like holiday launches, like their Easter. Oreo is always like a different color or has interesting flavor combinations and they've tried with like different sandwich uh, combinations. And so I don't know. I think that Oreo is actually doing quite a bit of stuff because I think in their mind, whatever they do strategically cannot come at the expense of milk's favorite cookie. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the same thing. Um, You know, I think that that brand pushes them into like that pop culture status um and and looking at this as like a cook is someone you know why the heck why is ray talking about oreos on the show um i think what i noticed over the last few months the pandemic with kind of what people were buying what people are looking to eat you know you look on youtube or you look at like food reviews or just like things i've noticed i realized that like a perfect example is like christina tosi how she makes these desserts that kind of tie into like your childhood favorite snacks and that scene is like i don't want to use the, the, the word gimmick doesn't fit that but it's her niche that's what she does but why is that someone's niche when it's something that everyone relates to so i just think it's a major blind spot that a lot of people in the industry have of the ability to relate to the you know it's okay to go back and it doesn't even have to be a corporate brand sponsored product it can be a grilled cheese it could be you know mac and cheese it could be pancakes your grandma made like it could be any of that um so i was just you know that's what i I guess that's what i'm trying to get at is the major blind spot that i had for myself and i think a lot of people have in the industry um but yeah i mean when you're successful like oreo it's all about marketing and milk syrup cookie everyone knows what that is i mean like their whole there's whole ad campaigns for them uh, debating whether you dip the you know the chocolate in or if you dip the whole thing in. i mean i tear mine apart i dip them in separately and then i eat it as whole after that but like you know, so I mean, like the fact that there's debates and like conversations on it, I just think it's really interesting. And you know, you don't want to. There's a, obviously that's a big corporation, and I feel like that's demonized a lot. And you know, there's a lot of the stuff that that comes from just purchasing from large corporations. But there's also something to be learned from the ability to market one single product like that. So, and kind I think of, you uh, see kind it. Kind of what's been on my mind. Yeah, and I think you see it with you know people. Any any pastry chef that's ever done a cookies and cream dessert, you know, like you're directly mm-hmm. going off of that flavor palette that is the experience of eating an Oreo. And that's kind of to tie in with what you mentioned with Christina Tosi's anything cereal milk related to Milk Bar. But mm-hmm. in line with that, so two things. The first is a person that we t- we talked about the first time that we um, spoke on a podcast. I think it was the yeah, it was the first time because the second time was when pandemic started. I think the reason that Joshua Weissman's but better video series on YouTube has just kind of like exploded in popularity is because he's a guy who has restaurant experience, but he's doing it with things that everybody knows. So Red Lobster, Cheddar Biscuits, uh, Popeye's Chicken Sandwich, uh, you know, the Crunchwrap Supreme, you know, and so could he have been as successful creating his own dishes Potentially, but the actual uh, way to scale and get a larger kind of like top of the funnel of an audience that people like 
actually understand what you're trying to go for is to, uh, you know, recreate these things that are already in pop culture and people already, you know, yeah. they, they, they hear the word Crunchwrap Supreme and they know, they go, I know exactly what that is um, versus, you know, yeah. I'm going to make this kind of like, I'm going to make handmade tortillas and I'm going to, you know, use a five Wagyu and I'm going to use like grilled avocado and something, something like that. Like if he would have created a dish like that on YouTube, it wouldn't have nearly reached the amount of people that, you know, all he had to do was recreate a Crunchwrap Supreme, which, you know, you and I talking about it post game is like, well, duh, of course that's going to do well. But, you know, the fact that no mm-hmm. one has done it to the level that he's done it is just like really, really interesting to watch. And then the second thing I was going to talk about are you familiar with um, how they got Japanese people to drink coffee? I'm not. So there's like this. Bi- well, so there's, and I've had this, and I don't know if I've talked about this on any other show before, but the Japanese, and I don't know if it was like individual companies that wanted to see a bigger presence of coffee drinkers in Japan, but they understood mm-hmm. that if they introduced it to people as adults, it wouldn't take off. You actually had to get people like, from a foundational level of craving coffee. And so they introduced it to like Japanese teenagers. And so then, you know, like you, you bring up this generation with coffee and then by the time that they get their office job, like on their way to work, they want to grab a coffee. And so it's almost like this, you're thinking about infusing a flavor or an ingredient or, you know, a dish style into a culture. Um, And I'm thinking about, there's going to be a chef that comes up with a dish that they that they want to execute in 2040 but they introduce a candy bar that they get a bunch of kids do you know what i mean like uh interested mm-hmm. in this combination of like i don't know fig and chocolate or whatever and they have this idea for this chocolate dessert that they want to plate at their restaurant their fast food you know fast casual chain or however we're eating in 2040 and they get people this nostalgia factor with this kind of like combination early on in their lives. And then because that's like every people that are on the top of their game talking about like the most impactful food experiences are like the nostalgic ones, the ones that um, touch on your memory of food experiences, whatever. And so I think it's just interesting to like, if you were to come up with like the ice cream truck concept for X, get a bunch of, you know, people in America, uh, infatuated with it from a memory perspective and then deploy it later on in their lives. I just think that's like 40 chess to the max. And I just thought that was really interesting because that might be the way to do it. And it's, it's a patient play versus like, Oh, we want more people in Japan to drink coffee. Let's create this big marketing plan, make it, you know, cool and productive to drink coffee while you're at work, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, like the Japanese didn't need another way to consume caffeine you know what i mean like a lot of people drink tea so there's no reason for them to you know want coffee but if you can introduce it to them early on in their lives it's a completely different story that's very very interesting yeah no i think that's really cool um it's like almost forming a habit totally for food i mean forming habits for food i wanted to switch gears and ask you about writing online because that's been more or less kind of like a lot of things that you've been working on over the past couple of months, especially as pandemics hit and as you've kind of made some transitions professionally. So mm-hmm. would you, and you don't have to go through every single piece that you've done, but I guess like, can you talk about a few of the pieces that you've written? Because I want to link to some of them in the description of this show and encourage people to read them, mm-hmm. but then also just talk through like your motivations behind writing some of them because they are, 
so valuable and an and interesting perspective on the industry. Yeah. Um, well, I kind of chat a little bit here. I'm going to actually pull, pull up so I can get the names of them correctly. Yeah, I don't remember exactly the names of all of them. Isn't that funny um, how you work so hard on a yeah, piece so of content I mean, and you can just like forget about what the title of it is after you? Dude, there's some podcasts that I forgot I even did the topic on and I'm like recording halfway through and I'm like, oh wait, I actually talked about this way back in like two years ago. Sounds about right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, real quick, do you want me to kind of get into how I got into writing professionally or do Please. you want me to just go to a piece? Please, because I, I feel like there are people who are very well spoken and articulate and, and maybe it's not even like they actually feel like they're a good writer, but they feel like they have a perspective or uh, a point of view on something. And writing is such a incredible way to scale that. And I think that to um, explore that going from being in the kitchen to, I mean, people, people don't talk about it. People do talk about it, but I, 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 I talked about it a little bit with um, Max Shapiro when I had him on the show of like, there's a lot of food critics and people writing about food who don't actually know food. And so I think to have the reverse happen where you start in the industry, you get some experience and then you switch to writing about it. You have such a competitive advantage. So keep, go for it. Cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, so starting out with writing. Um, so I guess I always wanted to write, I guess the really quick backstory is I wanted to write since I was a kid. Um, Harry Potter kind of shot me off into this like land of wow, you can make people think different ways when you write. Uh, so ever since I was ten years old, I wanted to be a writer, and like, I wrote. Uh, I would say write short stories in middle school and high school. You know, nothing crazy. Um, but for food writing, I when I started doing line cook thoughts, I was like, all right, you still have that goal of being a writer, that childhood dream of being a writer. So start writing. So when I started line cook thoughts, I started working on this document. Um, and basically, it's just, I don't even have a name for it. It's just, I've, you know, I broke it up into chapters like I would be writing a book. Technically, it's a book. We've talked about this before. Um, but it's just this document that I continue to work on. It's over uh, 50,000 words now. And it's just, it, it will be a book one day. Um, and I will, will like to publish it. It's been, it, it's cool because I wrote it, started it two years ago. So it was my thoughts um, from starting as a line cook to a restaurant manager and now through the pandemic. So I think it's a really cool time capsule that, you know, hopefully people will enjoy reading um but so getting started with writing was just really like starting with writing um i kept thinking like you know what you know wh how do you, i get better at this or how do I, I get to a point where i can actually publish my work and much like cooking i think you just have to keep practicing at it and doing just you know do it uh, like doing that learning guitar cooking it's all about doing it and just like practicing and getting better at it uh, i just kept writing 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 and um i, so I started writing on medium and i think for anyone you know anyone who wants to write they should start writing on medium um it's free it's a free platform to or it's three dollars a month so i mean for me that's like nothing you know that's, that's a starbucks coffee um that's more that's less than a starbucks coffee but i started writing on medium i wrote an article about my late grandfather basically just it, the article was titled i cook for someone who is no longer here it was basically just a thought process that i went through of how he was a big inspiration for me to be a chef and how he actually passed away the year before I went to culinary school. And how through a lot of that, you know, you know, it's life, it's, you know, you expect those things, but you think back on like how cool would it have been for him to see these different journeys that I've taken on. He's, you know, he, the realization he has not been alive to see any of my cooking. 
when I started at Wendy's, you know? So wrote that article, started to write some more pieces during the pandemic. And I was like, all right, I really want to get like into like the writing scene, much like the food scene. It can be a little intimidating at first. And so I figured the best thing I was going interviewing writers or people who work for magazines or what have you. So, you know, I have the podcast I interviewed or I invited on Chandra Ram. She's basically the editor of Plate Magazine. And I just asked her to come on the show, um, interviewed with her. We had a really great discussion on one of a magazine based out of Chicago. She kind of shared the platform for Plate was changing. Uh, things were going to be different. It was a really great conversation. And, you know, at the end of it, I was like, well, well you know, should I ask her or not? If like, I was just like, I'm just gonna ask her for advice. I said, look, I have this document. It's like 50,000 words. I've been putting out my own articles. I want to be a writer. How do I get to kind of work towards where you are? And she said, well, why don't you send something over? And I was like, all right, sounds good. So long story short, I wrote my first article. And this was like, it was back in uh, July. So it was July 7th, it came out. And it, it more than ever, restaurant line cooks need your support. Um, really didn't need to transition into anything big. And I think when people think about writing, um, you know, they go into kind of what they need to do that's not, you know, what they need to write about that's so mind-blowing. For me, though, my whole brand, my whole on the side with line cook thoughts is all about why cooks are important and why the people in the industry are important. So I just wrote about what I knew. And it resonated really well it got so much um you know it got so much good review i mean of course there's people that were like you know what well, you know you suck at writing but that was actually few and far between um that i i know i didn't, didn't enjoy it but obviously you know you, you there's always going to be critics um really well so then uh they asked me to write another article so the next article was like was your list and this has been a big topic of mine just kind of how we can prioritizing what it is we need in life as people in the industry i know the last year and a half i didn't take the time to care for myself like i should have i neglected relationships i neglected uh, self-care hobbies things that were important to me and i think with the pandemic uh, a lot of people woke up to the realization that they don't want to live their lives just grinding day after day behind the stove so an article leaving restaurants for a new career doesn't make you a sellout and this was the one i was the most scared of putting out and that's the one leave it out on i wrote a couple more after that but this was the one where i was like all right this is the one where and i'm nervous because i don't know how it's going to be received um because as you know in the industry it's, it's like we like to say it's cutthroat but it's really um there's a lot of friendship and there's a lot of um just you know brothers and sisters on the line type mentality and so to talk about leaving is taboo in some cases i know for a lot of people that is taboo so i put this article out expecting to get just like destroyed on Instagram, like not really knowing what to expect and plate put it out and I sh shared it. And I mean, the post sharing it got over 1200 likes, um, you know, had a lot of, and really just a lot of cooks reaching out saying, yeah, I feel this way. I'm afraid to leave the industry because of what others will think, but I'm literally not paying rent. And so that for me was the article that like has been the best so far. And it's been the one that I think resonated the most with people. It felt the most good to write, but before I put it out, I was the most nervous. So I, I would say that like writing professionally has been great. It's allowed me to create. Um, Plate is such an amazing place to write for. 
Um, but really, like the ideas that I that scared me the most and kind of thoughts that I had but didn't want to share are really resonated well with others. Couple, so, congratulations, of course, to start because that's like there's a lot of people who have those ideas and they're like, oh, well, I want to share this, but I don't necessarily know, like you said, how well this is going to get received or what are people going to say? What are people going to think? And to overcome that and actually like put it out there and not just put it out mm-hmm. there, but do it in from such a thoughtful place. I think that there's a lot of people and I'm so, dude, I'm so glad that um, our inner, our conversation we had at the beginning of the pandemic was the way that it was almost because there's so many people who are just like pontificating and talking about things at the, at the start of this whole thing, or it's just like, just comes off. I don't know. Just comes off as not, not great. But what I wanted to, to emphasize for people is you going in for the ask when the opportunity was there. You know what I mean? Cause after that interview happened to be able to, you know, extend that and almost, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to um, mm-hmm. make that kind of a, a request of like, and, and I, I just I just don't think people always kind of like draw that connection and they, they almost think that, oh, well, if she saw that I was a good writer, she would ask me to write an article versus you being proactive about it and saying like, hey, I'm actually wanting, like, you are the person, you are, you are at the destination that I want to be at. You're publishing things online regularly you know, and I have this connection to you. I've provided value by having you on my show and, you know, sharing you and your platform with my audience. You know, um, I just don't think people think strategically in that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to kind of put a pin in that so that people acknowledge and can hopefully take some value from that approach. Because I think that um, even if it's uh, getting a job at a restaurant, you know, like someone who, you know, is thinking of that first job that they're intimidated to ask the chef, you know, are you hiring line cooks right now? Or are you hiring bartenders right now? Uh, can be a little bit intimidating when you feel like you're, you don't have as much value to leverage to get that person to say yes. Do you have any other things to add there in, you know, that ask that you made to her? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something, that's a tool that I've used a lot since um since starting i think my professional career i mean it's, I, I did a lot in high school i did a lot in college i'm just like being like hey can i go to that meeting or hey can i go to that demo um but in terms of like your own projects or your own career like i'm gonna tell you like that ask is it works maybe three out of ten times um and it's not because the other person's a bad person it's because they have, have a lot going on when i was in i lived in new york city for six months um and in that time i got to eat at some pretty incredible restaurants and i would go up to the chef i remember there was one specific moment where it was an open kitchen um and i went up to the chef he was like he's pretty he's pretty well known and he's i was intimidated by him just because like you know who the heck am i and i went up and i was like hey chef do you mind you know i do a podcast for cooks would you come on he said yes he never i never reached out i mean I, i emailed him never got back to me that happened maybe five times to me in the city and it's not that those people you know, maybe they just said yes. They'll be like, not you know, to avoid anything uncomfortable. More, my, I thought they're really busy, so like you know, don't have the time for it. But then there were a couple people that did say yes, and like that like changed how you know how much of reach line cook thoughts has. So like that ask is super important. It doesn't work every time, but it needs. To, I, in my opinion, it needs to happen every time in order for you to get some chances. For me, I think it's a thirty percent shot 
of a yes, in my opinion, for something like a podcast or an article. Like, hey, can I have your business card? Or hey, hey, can I have a stage? Might be a little bit easier, but like to do something that provides them value, but it does provide you value. I would say it's about a thirty percent. Do you think that? And this is me, uh, you know, maybe taking it a step too far in the productive direction. But do you think that the ask could have a higher, and I hate to call it a conversion rate because it makes me sound like a growth hacker douchebag, but like, do you think that if you went up at the end of the meal, said something along the lines of, you know, I write about food online and, you know, not, not from a critic perspective, but like, um, I write to a large audience of industry professionals, maybe something along those lines. And I'd love to, you know, email you about feedback on this experience. I had a really good time could you then kind of like almost like open the door? Because what I'm thinking about is like someone running the pass, they either need to like get back to the thing or they don't, what's at hand or they don't have the mental capacity to like actually weigh, is this a good idea? Who is this guy? I've never met this person before, but you could almost like provide Mm -hmm. extra value from like the perspective of, um, you know, I, uh, email that you get their email address you email them to tell them about the experience what you liked what you didn't like you know obviously don't you know completely blast them uh but then something at the end of like and i host an industry podcast you know where i talk to professionals and it goes out to a large audience of people would you be interested in coming out for an interview um mm-hmm. i don't know do you do, do you think that that would uh get get some more higher than that 30 percent quote unquote or do you think that you know it it, it would flop yeah, there's two uh, two points to that for me. I think that would work. I think you would have a, have a higher conversion rate if you're directly talking with that person, or even if you're talking to a PR agent. It might be something that could. I'll have to try it to see. I, I do think that would work better. I think it's an amazing idea. Yeah. Um, and I think for anyone trying to break in, that's a really good idea. Um, but there is something else I noticed, and maybe you've noticed this too. You know, we talk a lot. I feel like everyone talks a lot about supporting independent and, you know, supporting those small content creators or independent restaurants or whatever. But I feel like actions lead to us being more comfortable sometimes going with bigger brands. And this isn't like me hating on bigger brands or if people have done podcasts. Like, I, you know, this is just me. What I've noticed is it can be very difficult as an independent creator to get someone to come on your show, especially when you ask that person and they're like, eh, and then like, Next week, you see them on like a major food media outlet. Um, so, and of course, I mean, it, it's more reach for them, it's more exposure for them. Um, but I do think it's something that, like, when you are creating independently, the no does come more just because you're not backed by anyone, even though it's, it's, it's like cool to say that we support independent creators, which I think a lot of people do, but it is a lot more difficult to get, especially more established people. And they have good reason to be, um, you know, these big brands, they have, they have a reputation and they have like a track record. And so do you, but not as many people know it. You know, what if this per- what if these people go on your show and you decide you wanted to hack up their words and spin a completely different, you know, segment on what they were doing just so they, this person could get like go viral, you know, that's the reality that a lot of people like think about. So it's just a give and take with it. And it's something I've noticed. I'd like to ask you if you've noticed that and kind of what your thoughts are on that. A couple things. I think, when you're talking about, and that's why I think it's important to position it when you approach this person of being as clear as possible and having like that elevator pitch ready to go. 
Because in the same mm. way that a line cook might be thinking about like, hey, do you have any jobs here? That's not a great question. You know, do you have any uh, <laughs> availability on the kitchen team um, at the you know lower levels of the brigade? I think that that's a more targeted kind of like question for someone to ask a chef if they approach them in person at the pass yeah. after dinner. You know, so to say something along the lines of like, oh, well, I have a food podcast is kind of the same thing bad question because i'm thinking through like splendid table and line cook thoughts versus you know like splendid table versus line cook thoughts versus the true jordy podcast not true jordy uh, air jordan oh my goodness true jordy i'm thinking through like um anyways uh like they're all completely different shows you know so someone t- someone coming on uh you know, Splendid Table is gonna it's gonna be a completely different interview positioned to a completely different audience than, you know, someone coming on Line Cook Thoughts. You know, so to yeah. have that elevator pitch ready to go where it's like you know, I and mine would be something along the lines of like I talk to a lot of like line cooks, sous chefs, culinary school students about ways to progress their career. You know, like that is an interesting draw to someone who is interested in seeing the you know, starting uh, entrance of the industry get better you know that 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 pool of people um so there's that yeah. and then the other thing is like i always think about this from the perspective of like if you have someone who either has a massive following already do they have that much to gain from being on your show and if not how can you make it worth their while and then in the reverse yeah. too where maybe they have 200,000 followers on Inst- so let, let, let's do a different number so they have 2500 followers on instagram it's actually better for those people to go on your show because you have a bigger Instagram presence than I do. But if someone is like, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting to launch a course or do anything gear related, like they're probably better off coming on my show, you know, because like, and so what does that person have to gain from being on your show based on who your audience is? Because I don't actually want all that many people who listen to like, you know, traditional food podcasts, I guess, to listen to the emulsion because it's mm-hmm. not it's not the same type of show. Um, and so I guess think about that as you're approaching people. And this is to people listening, of course, like w- what does that person have to gain and does it map with their goals? Because I'm thinking about like if someone has a book coming out in a few months, the more exposure they can get and tell the story of why they made the book, the better um, versus yeah. like if someone is only caring about butts and seats at the restaurant, you know, I don't think that being on either of our shows is going to help with that, you know, because we just don't, we like, that's not the audience. You know, we have a global audience of people who are busy as fuck working, you know, long hours in the kitchen and they just want to like get some industry news or, you know, hear from a different chef's perspective or, you know, learn something. They're not trying to find, you know, what the hot food in Austin, Texas is, you know, right now. And so keeping all of those things top of mind, I think is, is really, really valuable. Yeah. I, um, and with that, like what you're saying too, is like, with someone like a large following, what do they have to gain coming on my show? For example, I'll use my show for example. And so like, there is that question. I mean, I have more to gain if I get Gordon Ramsay to come on my show, you know? So if he says no, I can't be, mad at that you know what i mean and it can't discourage me i just have to be like all right that was a shot that didn't work but i've had plenty of guests on who are you know well-known people and i mean it's it's just for me it's just like 
life have like life will give you what you need at certain points and you just have to be able to like take those chances when they come but it's not going to be yes every time and but so like for me i used to like be really resentful in the beginning but now, now it, not resentful but just like oh why wouldn't they like want to come on this is such a good idea but then i realized that like you know i, I would i would be wary of going on someone's new show because are they going to follow through or they do they have a good audience do they have a good track record so yeah i guess and and i didn't do a very good job about of articulating that specific reason of why like make it worth their while or, or, or it's not worth it for them to, to come on your show from the perspective of, I think about like, do you, have you seen people who do like the, the book tours on like good morning America? They go on the Ellen show. Like they just do like the same interview over and over and over again. And like, that's why Joe Rogan took off because he actually sits there. You'll get like, you know, an hour and 53 minutes into the interview and they've talked about, you know, like banana plantations and like, uh, I don't know, like traveling to, you know, the Caribbean and that one time that I went hunting in Canada and whatever. And then all of a sudden, two hours into the thing, you're talking about the book that they're on tour for. And that's why people like Joe Rogan. So could coming on, like, could working with you, could collaborating with you actually lead to a different type of content? So like Gordon Ramsay actually gets thoughtful questions from someone in the industry versus someone who wants to talk about like what's the worst kitchen nightmare you've ever had you know what i mean like <laughs> this stupid question that yeah. like he's been asked a million times and it's on record like it already has a million views on youtube from him talking about the same thing that these journalists or reporters or interviewers ask him all the time what if you were to ask him about like hey i have this great story like um you know, in, in touch with my grandfather. And then that got like me introduced to cooking. Do you have any connections like that to like older members of your family? You know, like I, I don't think that he's been asked that all that often. And so I always try to keep that in mind as I'm thinking through, like, as I listen to podcasts with other people, the amount of times I hear, oh, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Like that is an asset, you know, because now that person who, you know, is quote unquote out of your league doesn't, they now have a new piece of content. You provided value to them because now, you know, how cool is it if you chop that up that like, I've never been asked that before. It's a little eight minute clip. You send them that as an email and say, Hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. You can share this on your YouTube channel, you know, and then they put out new content that their audience, you know, gets excited about. And then you get the kickback because like, you're the one that, you know, had the guts or the creative energy to ask them that question. So I think that like, even if it seems like it, someone is out of your league, you can still provide value if you approach it from like your unique uh, angle. What You mentioned something in line with the last article that you touched on with cooks reaching out to you and that was almost like your measure of success. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on like how you judge success for a piece because, you know, in the age of like how many likes do you get, how many views do you get, like how much money do you make on a sponsorship deal? I think that's a really interesting way to to think about it. And I will sometimes do the same of like, if I send an email newsletter or, you know, post a video on YouTube, what is the comments section like? Is like a really interesting metric to evaluate a piece of content by that you can't exactly like present as a deck to a brand and say like, hey, this is exactly what, like, so I think about it from the, 
I had this video that I did with Chrome, the knife roll, and I asked my question for people to enter the giveaway was like, how long is your commute to work? And it's one of my best performing comment sections because I made it easy for people to comment and people actually got in the conversa- in the comments and like had conversations and like I rank that as amazingly successful. Um, but yeah, how do you how do you judge success on a piece that you're working on? Yeah, uh, it's the same way I judge success for line code thoughts. Um, I think it, metrics is just something I'm not I don't follow as much. Like I'm aware of how many followers I have, how much listener listenership I have, how much growth I'm seeing. I run Instagram ads for merch. Like I you know I look at metrics but i about a year in i was like you know you keep running metrics 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 and it's literally the only thing you're disliking about this entire process so just stop worrying about metrics and so i really had to learn to stop worrying about metrics and i think once that kind of ended where i was like oh my god i need to get more followers i need to get more likes blah 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 blah. like now like yeah that is my success you know sharing that post and just seeing the 50 some comments of cook saying I needed to hear this or, you know, this is exactly how I feel or just thank you for writing what gives me permission to go chase something else. Like that's success for me. Success for me is, um, you got a message the other day where it was just like, someone just said, you know, really enjoy the podcast. I share it with all my cooks, um, when we were prepping for our, for our service every Sunday. And that is success for me. Like that is so cool. In my opinion, that people use my medium, my platform to get, you know, excited about uh, a service or just it's something to pass the time when they're peeling garlic or trying to get boxes ready for food going out, you know, for takeout. So that's success for me. Success with my content is people actually resonating and enjoying it. And it actually means something to them. And not everyone has to like it. Success also for me is the people that counter argue you and it's interesting enough to them in a negative way for them to like be like, well, I think this is wrong. or I think this is different this is how the industry shouldn't be um and so for success i think it's more so the reaction and the the fact that it resonated with some with people i, I mean i look for positive resonation the fact that it resonates with people and gets them thinking and gets them kind of thinking about their own career that's what i want line cook thoughts to be about so that's success i mean yeah of course i've had like huge it's easy to get a lot of likes on instagram in my opinion my most liked picture was um and this wasn't to get a lot of likes but just to show you kind of you could, if you were to bet, like my most liked picture of all time was when the two year anniversary of when Anthony Bourdain took his life. I posted a very, like, just, you know, sincere, like, you know, we still haven't forgotten you. Like you were the voice for cooks. I don't remember exactly what the post said, but because he's such an iconic figure in the industry that got so much more likes than anything else I put out. And so I think it's easy to really, like, if you're going for likes, if you're going for followers, it's easy to do certain things, but if you're going for like lasting or impact on people, I think that's a lot more for me that's more important but that doesn't come with getting like there's posts now I have almost 11,000 followers there's posts that'll get 65 likes and I know that that I want want that to be out there because that's someone's thoughts and it might not have been posted at the right time where the picture quality might not be the best but it's someone's genuine representation of what they're going through in the kitchen and as long as I can have that original like honest representation of what cooks and people in the industry are sharing then that is what success means to me that's great. I think it it doesn't get talked about enough. And there's like a what gets measured gets managed, uh, something like nugget mm-hmm. of insight in there. But it's almost like what I guess the, the, the takeaway might be what 
actually brings you value that might not be measurable? And how can you optimize for that? Maybe that's kind of like the takeaway. <laughs> I have it yeah. in my notes here. The, the bullet point is things suck right now. And I also wanted to talk about like your transition out of a professional kitchen, if you don't mind talking about it a little bit, but combo both of those together. So like, unfortunately, the conversation we had months and months and months ago is still very relevant to the restaurant industry. And like, I, I'm sure you've been following the news that came out of LA of like just g- g- banning outdoor dining as like a huge mm-hmm. blow to places that just, you know, are already you know, either probably ex- overextended the lines of credit or had to furlough employees or do all these sorts of, you know, like things just to stay afloat. And I think when you and I were talking months ago, it was this thing where, you know, we saw it as temporary. We were told it was going to go away uh, in this in the in the summertime. Uh, but we're still here, man. And it's like end of the year. And so mm-hmm. I guess can you share your thoughts mm-hmm. on either how things have changed for you or, or where you see the industry at right now and some thoughts. Yeah, I guess we'll go with how things change with me first and then we can go into um, kind of what I'm seeing. Um, so how things change for me. So last time we talked, I was living in Chicago. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I was managing restaurants in major cities across the country by the last, like for a year and a half, for a year and like eight months, really did you know really just my career was going really well where i wanted to be um and obviously my restaurant got shut down in chicago and i was living i mean i was living in like the gold coast i was you know making really good money i was every night going out to restaurants and you know maybe not being this you know saving money but still like spending a lot of it and um i mean life was like really fun life was really good and so like i my restaurant closed and then i ended up having to to leave that job and then I ended up having to leave the apartment that like I worked so hard for to get um and then I ended up moving with my girlfriend and or my exit now um but then like my me and my girlfriend obviously broke up so then I had to move back home and so now like we're recording this and I'm in my sister's old bedroom so like you know things change um restaurant wise I was in a really good job that I liked but it wasn't healthy for me and it didn't allow me to live life how I want to live and I think moving back home there was like a period of three months where I really didn't work I was looking for jobs I was actively searching for jobs but I was really just like it was almost like you were back at square one you know I feel like a lot of people they want to leave their home they want to go beyond their own they want to do their own thing and that's great but then the pandemic came you know and like for me I had to move back home I didn't have anywhere else to live I didn't have you couldn't really find a job especially then um, and so like, I'm back at square one and for a while that really like messed with my head. And it, I, I was down for like three months of just like, I don't even know, like I would, like, I would like, I don't know how to explain it. It was like my day moved faster than I could process. So like I, I would practice guitar and like make lunch and it would be three o'clock wow. and I get up early. I get up at like seven and I'd be, I was like, all right. And then it's like 8 PM and then the next day and like so i you know really like rough time i think during the summer um just kind of processing everything personally and professionally but then like i realized that while i love restaurants i wanted to be into a sector of the industry that 
was growing and that was really benefiting people. Um, I, you know, obviously I keep work in this separate, but I'm in the grocery industry now and I find it so fascinating what, what people are eating during the pandemic, what people need, what, you know, it's beyond, it's beyond just like food. It's like, how do we run out of toilet paper in the pandemic? Like, how do we run out of paper goods? Like that all adds up in some way and it all makes things different for those looking to go out to eat. So my transition out of the professional kitchen was, you know, me second guessing it and being like, oh my God, like you're selling out. And, you know, lessons I learned from transitioning out of the professional kitchen for now, I mean, I wrote that article more, maybe more so just to make things right with me and to finally tell myself you're not a sellout. And I think that's why I wrote that article that was so important to me. But I, what I realized is that while cooks work hard, people work hard in other industries too. And I always saw people in other industries as weaker or that they weren't they didn't know what hard work was, that they didn't work as hard. Um, and that's not really true. A, a lot of different industries work extremely hard and there's extremely hard workers everywhere you go. And just, be, you know, because they work 40 to 50 hours a week compared to your 60 to 70 doesn't make them lesser of a worker. It's just maybe their industry has understood that work-life balance is something you need. I don't know, you know, like, but, um, so learning that there's hard workers everywhere learning that you're that you really can't for me i couldn't be confined to just being a cook or being a chef and if i'm going to like really enjoy my career and enjoy where i go i need to be able to do more than just be one thing i've always been someone who tries new things get into new i've had i I have my core hobbies but then there's like things i've tried like i got into you know really getting i still play guitar but really got into guitar over the summer and then like two months ago i really got into sports cards as you know the sports card I mean, you may know sports cards has been like super insane and i like i got into really pokemon got into cards, that man. like i got back i got like i'll show you my binder someday i don't know if you're a pokemon guy too but i'm, I'm not a sports card guy and you don't have to be a pokemon guy but yeah I, I feel you i'm there i'm right there with you i got burned up pokemon, no. so i kind of i didn't i don't i'm not really deep into lore um i guess a quick thing is i pulled a uh the dolphins rookie quarterback i pulled a pink mosaic card out of 10 which is and I got it graded, and it was worth $1,500, and that's kind of what got me hooked on, like, the card game. Damn. But that's a different podcast. It's a different topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but, like, the ability to work and then still have hobbies and still be able to do things outside of that. So that's where I'm, that's that's been the big change. It was a very tough change. It was a lot of growth. It was a lot of different thoughts. It wasn't perfect. There was a lot of nights, I'll be honest, where I sat up and I was just, like, crying. I was like, why am I in this? Like, what happened? What, you know, I play the game where I always go back a year, and I'm like, where did I do what was i thinking and doing in a year like a year ago and a year ago i was living in chicago in this overpriced apartment and in the middle of one of the most beautiful cities i've ever lived in but now and now i'm with home with family but i'm with family during a pandemic and that's something i'm grateful for and i'm home for a holiday whereas last year i was alone for thanksgiving and christmas because of my work and what i had to do and my responsibility so the change was good and bad but i have kept a positive outlook on it and i'm moving forward in a positive way and I'm really taking advantage of having a schedule that allows me to have things where I can record podcasts and write articles and play around with sports cards if I want to. Um, I just went hunting this last weekend. I saw like, that. There's so many different things that I do. I've never been hunting before. I'm yeah. jealous. <laughs> you know, hunting is something that I think for me, if you're going to... I don't want to say things that are abrasive, but it's always been important for me to be able to take the life of an animal if I'm going to 
to eat it. I've done it with pigs, cows, yep. chickens, and now deer. Um, this weekend being the first deer I've ever harvested. Um, and so, yeah, I guess a little short tangent into hunting is I think it's, it's a lot like cooking where you have to have a lot of self-discipline, but in the opposite sense, you have to sit out in cold weather. It's uncomfortable. There's a certain level of discomfort that comes with hunting. I'm never able to stay warm when hunting. I'm always freezing my ass off. Um, and it, like when you're sitting out in 30 degree weather waiting for maybe something to walk by you, it can be like, it, it took me like, this was probably the first time where I was ever able to discipline myself enough to sit outside. Sure. But like, I guess not to stray too far away. It's been things like that and experiencing different things that have really opened my eyes to like, whoa, cooking is cool. And it's something I love and food is cool. And it's something I love. But it's not what all, what life is all about, and there's so many other things that you can get enjoyment out of. So, so that's kind of been how I've been and how things worked. Before we get into the future, was there anything you wanted to touch upon in that like five minute rant? <laughs> yes, yes, I have been taking notes. So the the first piece is is to and as as we're talking, I'm just grateful that you're kind of giving me the airtime to like. I feel like in some respects, I sometimes like will shepherd these ideas that I hear on business podcasts and, you know, entrepreneurial books and strategy, mindset, psychology things. And I like I like bringing them up in conversations like this because I think that it's things that don't get talked about from, you know, a mental models perspective or, like I said, psychological things that people don't always think about in the industry. But because it is mm-hmm. my industry, like I totally understand why some of these things apply so uh, you know if anybody the, the, the things thinks that i'm parroting people's books just for the sake of it it's it's because i really do think that these crossovers are where the magic can sometimes be and i think you're noticing that too as you're you know you're transitioning industries and dabbling in other things like the experience you have as a chef actually can apply to guitar or hunting or you know like filling out a spreadsheet even um so the first thing that that, that stood out was Jason Freed has this um, company called Basecamp. I think he's also out of Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. And he has this thing that he talks about the difference between hard work and challenging work. Have you heard his, that rant before? I have not. So, so he talks about like, you know, in the tech startup space, there's like this idea that, oh, we work so hard. We work 80 hours a week. And he's like, we don't actually work hard. Like we sit at a desk and we like input some data and we have some meetings and we, you know, build features and we, we code some stuff, but it's not hard work. Hard work is like the person who, if you've ever seen like videos of people harvesting grapes for, you know, during wine season, like, uh, you know, the, the, the prep cook who's like lifting the fucking huge stock pot and straining it over a big you know strainer or like unpacking ingredients or you know doing the deliveries like a your delivery driver works hard you know but challenging work can be like emotionally draining it can be like mentally exhausting it can you know like cause you to really have to take a step back and be like damn i am like just like fatigued from doing this but like it's not hard and so i think that that doesn't get talked about enough because if you know you're you're wanting to be the hardest worker you know you're if you're a chef you're actually not like there's people who are doing harder work than you from the perspective mm-hmm. of like back breaking like incredibly physically demanding like yes n- neither you nor I are saying being a chef is not hard work but if you're saying that like you know by by taking a job at a desk or something that is a little bit more quote unquote challenging 
that you're not working hard or you're going to scoff at that, I would kind of like ask you to take a look in the mirror. If you're saying you're the hardest, you're, you're, you are a harder worker, I can actually point to people who are working harder than you. And then on the flip side, like don't take challenging work and say that it's not also like, do you know what I mean? Like it's not actually difficult because challenging can also be, you know, taxing and, um, on the, on the positive end of that, it can be more rewarding, like, because you're, you're, you're putting more at risk, like you're, uh, potentially providing a lot of value because if it's challenging, that means that the barrier to entry is there because not a lot of people want or strive for challenges. And so as you're talking about some of those things, that, um, similarity kind of came up for me and I want people to ponder that in their own lives as they're thinking about like wearing this badge of honor of, you know, I work really hard, you know, or, uh, people that don't work like me aren't working hard because if you're solving challenging problems, you're also doing great work. That was the first one. And the first, the second thing was in relation to me, when I moved to Seattle, I was really thinking like, I really want to do this media thing. Um, and I came to terms with this and I always would tell myself this in my moments of doubt, I would always tell myself, you can always go back. Like you can always find another sous chef job. You can always like, you know, send your resume out to people. And if they ask about a gap in your resume, it's only going to look good for you to say something along the lines of like, after I left my last job, I had this thing that I really needed to try it didn't go very well and now I'm like more committed than ever to being in a professional kitchen because that made me realize that like this is where I can succeed and this is where I can make a contribution and whatever. It's only going to make you look better because then that person is actually going to be able to relate to you uh, on a more human level. And so as people are thinking about can I leave, should I leave, what happens if I leave, play that out. You know, like what if you leave your job, what's going to happen? Like, what what is the worst case scenario? And for me at the time, it was like, you know, all my past colleagues are going to make fun of me. I'm never going to be able to get a job again. Uh, I'm going to lose my touch. Like, I'm not going to be able to cook or season as well as, as, as I could in the past. Uh, my knife skills are going to get worse, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, you look at all of those on paper, and it's like, I just realized that it's actually not all that true or there was actions I could take to remedy them if needed. You know, like if I lost my touch with cooking, you know, like I could either just ramp up my cooking at home and like get back, you know, my, my touch a little bit more or maybe I get my, you know, maybe I do get hired back again in a professional kitchen and then all of a sudden like my first week sucks, but then it's like riding a bike and I can just get back onto it because I would think back of like, hmm have there been any moments in my career where I've taken some time away from the kitchen? Yes. How long did it take me to get my feet back under me? Not very long. And so then you, you're kind of like dispelling all these myths and negative self-talk that you're telling yourself. Um, so those two things really helped me quite a bit. So in my notes of things suck right now, Ray, talk to me about the, the <laughs> industry at large. Yeah. Uh, um, so, I, my focus on the industry really changed over the last few months, whereas I think before I was really focused on world's be- 50 best or, you know, Michelin stars or, you know, and then transitioning into, you know, hot new restaurants or whatnot. But now it's more so kind of 
the 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 bigger picture of what food means to people. And so, yes, there's like looking at my local food scene in Buffalo, New York and seeing really great establishments closing down. It's seeing, you know, what's happening in L.A. and seeing outdoor dining close. It's seeing the dramatic growth of people who are private chefs or meal prep businesses or, you know, online delivery businesses. Why is, you know, Grubhub or DoorDash or whatever is doing well. Um, So the industry at large for me has been more so focused on like not just the niche that I feel like we kind of find ourselves in sometimes, but the bigger picture. And so I think, you know, I have no idea with the pandemic what's going to change per se, but I think the biggest thing, I think the thing I think is going to be big is obviously brand now because everyone's being forced to get online. Everyone's being forced to get into ecosystems that they're not used to. And so it's a lot about like when you're scrolling through an app on door, like on DoorDash, for example, you know, obviously your, your, your name's going to need to be known. People are going to need to know who you are because when they're hungry and they're going through that app, they're going to be hit with so much. If you don't stick with them and if you're, it doesn't even have to be that you have the best food. We just had the best experience. It doesn't, if it doesn't stick with them, then they're not, not going to remember that after they've gone through this entire, like, you know, ads popping up of McDonald's or Chipotle or what have you. So I think that's a big thing is going to be like really like big brand and awareness or just awareness of name and it doesn't have to be anything special but just getting yourself out there um i think industry-wise that there's going to be a lot of people who transition to different roles in the industry i mean we're already seeing that already um and i think that is going to relate to a lot of i don't know i just see a lot of like cool um content coming out now of like things i never would have thought of like i have a friend from school who's doing like she's doing dinners and she's they're called she, it's called devious dinners i haven't even i haven't watched an episode yet but she told me about it and i just thought it was a cool concept she's doing videos where she, she shows people how to cook and she talks about true crime um, while doing Amazing. that and that's coming from yeah i thought it was a cool idea and it's coming from kind of the idea of not the idea but you know her maybe not working as much so needing to fill gaps so you're gonna see a lot of new creative endeavors and whatnot um so that's what i'm seeing and then and you know you're seeing like these large you're seeing these brand name chefs over the last few months having to close restaurants and titans of the industry having to close restaurants the biggest one was tack room i think was one that was like really like wow i'm surprised that close massive um, yep you know being in new york was that you said oh. i didn't you kind of broke up oh Did, sorry i said that's ma- with that like, as well? it was a mass it was a massive closing like i didn't see it coming either because they just opened mm-hmm. not no. just did they they just open but like when i was working at french laundry in 2013 yeah 2012 2013 uh they were r&d testing recipes for that restaurant so it's like this has been a eight-year project in the works and to have it close like so suddenly was fuck man yeah it's it's sad and i know like there's people who hate it on that room but no it's sad to see any really any restaurant close um but what I do see is, like, I really see, like, these chefs going and leaning heavily into their brand name in regards to, like, like Emerald has his, like, sauce lines on shelves in grocery stores. Like, grocery is, like, where many people are right now because dining's closed. So where are you going to get food from? It's a grocery store. 
uh, or it's through a delivery app. Um, I see like a lot of like an opportunity for people to create small businesses or businesses that revolve around jarred goods or like pickles or whatever, you know, stuff that can be sold, a tangible product that can be sold and kept and like used over and over again, such as like a condiment or a sauce or a grill. Um, so that's where I see it going. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think it's cool. And I think it leads to a chef's getting into entrepreneurial um, businesses that maybe they wouldn't have ever thought of before. And it's less reliant on the perishable food element of things to like, that's what we make our money on. I think that that's like, I'm really, really excited to see that as a shift in people's business models where, you know, 80% of our revenue comes from our sauce line and grocery stores, but you know, we make kind of 20% of our revenue from people that come into our brick and mortar location and we get to serve them food out of it, you know, so it almost flips where, you know, there's a lot of places where like the restaurant is the cash cow in, in theory, even though it's not that profitable, but you like, you call yourself profitable because the cookbook or the, you know, the jam, uh, or the, you know, chicken sauce makes, uh, makes enough money at a high enough profit margin where you can actually show that the company is profitable. Um, cause I think that the, the, the positive cash flow and the increased profit margins allow for a lot more of the things that you and I want to see more of in the industry from, you know, better lives for, for chefs, uh, increased benefits, um, shorter work hours, um, all of these, these sorts of things. Semi in line yeah. with that. Uh, you've had a great kind of like last 18 months of prioritizing your physical health. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit because it's um, something I've been prioritizing as well. Like I can't, I I probably can't run as far and as fast as you can uh, these days. But um, I mean, you know, it's something that I, I threw my back out lifting a green egg grill down a staircase and it made me realize, like, I'm a weak little wimpy wuss boy. <laughs> and I can't, like, I mean, it it's it was, like, a 150-pound grill, which is, it's that's heavy. But um, I was lifting it with another person. But it just made me realize, like, you, your biomechanics are all wrong. Like, I have anterior pelvic mm-hmm. tilt. Like, my um, shoulder posture is really bad. Um, I can't touch my toes. And so like that really kind of, and then that, that actually comboed with at the same time, like both of my parents' health not going great. And so in line with like keeping in mind all the hereditary issues that come with being that their genes being my genes, you know, I started to really prioritize health quite a bit more. And so I'd be curious to hear you talk about like prioritizing your health and uh, yeah, what you're, what you're working on or thinking about or, or what that transition into taking it more seriously was like. Yeah, it's actually funny because tonight I ate a giant bowl of pasta. Uh, so did I. And, so like, did I. That's I, right. I was cheating myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so last 18 months. Yeah, I think that, that fits in. So I guess, I, I, yeah, I don't know if we've ever talked about like the weight loss. Maybe we touched upon it. I don't yep. think we ever have. But so like growing up, I was always overweight. Um, maybe, no, I would say when I was like 13, I started to get really overweight. Um, and I would eat like horrendously, like, so the biggest I ever was was 278 pounds. Wow. And I would, that was in my senior year of college and I would eat like in, but you know, I, I was always a hard worker, but so I always felt like that 
led me to I was not hard worker. I it was it was a lack of self care. I don't want to say hard worker. Hard workers can be healthy. It was lack of self care disguises me. Oh, I work so hard, so I deserve these things. And like I would drink two frappuccinos a day, and I would get McDonald's after eating three meals a day, like just after school, like with friends and whatnot. And we would go to this diner. You probably know it, Ever Ready Diner, totally um, down at the CIA. And I would get um, like fries and gravy and the Oreo malted milkshake, yeah, crappy stuff. Um, and so when I graduated high school or when I graduated college, I was like, yeah, I really need to like get this under control. Um, I'm unhealthy. I'm overweight. And I just hate, I hated how I looked and I hated how I felt. And I hated, you know, it's like the little things, like, especially if a chef is overweight, maybe, you know, it's tough, like putting on, on chef weights and like wearing an apron and that apron hiding kind of your figure and kind of you wanting to just wear things that are that really conceal like what you feel. That's how, how I would always feel. I would I would always be uncomfortable in chef weights because white clothing doesn't tend to lead you know to you looking the slimmest. So, um, and at least in my case, it didn't. So that was always like on my mind, and I always knew I needed to get under control. So I really focused on eating first. Um, and it's hard when you're in the industry. Um, you know, I will. It's not easy. Um, but really, a lot of self control, a lot of like not eating after work. And which was like I say that for some people, and that's probably unheard of, but I literally would not eat after work. I would not eat after like nine o'clock max if I was working a Saturday night, but usually eight o'clock. I wouldn't work it, I wouldn't not eat. Um, so I really, long story short, I lost all that weight. I'm right now I'm at 202 pounds, but the lowest I got to was 195. So that's, stellar, that's 78. Yeah, thank you. That's so that was like an 80 pound loss up to 202. So I really. So I dropped all the weight and I started working out, started exercising. When I started managing restaurants, I dropped the exercising because managing restaurants was in itself an exercise. Um, I was walking in New York City 15 minutes each way to get to work. I'm really walking everywhere. So I really didn't need the, I mean, yes, there's things I couldn't, did need to work on, but overall to keep my weight down, that was that. Um, but then, you know, I've, it's not just about losing weight. It's about kind of still what you're eating. And so um, recently I went, had like a doctor's visit and like my cholesterol is so high and, you know, cholesterol being high leads to a lot of different bad things. I mean, you know, heart attacks to later on in life, it, it, you know, I was reading up on it, it could lead to Alzheimer's. Like there's so many different things that have that, you know, consuming too many fatty or meat products that could be bad for you. And I've done a lot of reading and I, I know where I need to be and I'm not exactly where I want to be with eating, but I'm getting there. Um, but into your point with running, um, I realized that like I needed something that was going to really help me get, um, motivated to keep working out and running for me was always something I wanted to do. I liked the idea of getting up in the morning and running, but I actually hated doing it. And so I um, just started running one day. My friend had a challenge. It was like 50, uh, 40, it was 46 miles um, for the one month. So I ran the 46, I was like, all right, I'm going to run the 46 miles. And I literally like didn't even do any research. I just went out one day and ran a mile and it like sucked and I hated it, but I did, kept doing it. I did it again and again. And this is when I'm like lesser weight. Um, in quarantine, I shot up to 217. So I did gain 15 pounds. And then like I came back down. There was a really bad point in quarantine where I was that dark period we were talking about where I was like not taking care of myself at all. So there was weight gain that you know, it happens when you're trying to like keep weight off. But, you know, I was able to take it back off. But running was really important for me because it was something that I didn't expect I'd be able to do. And so 
I had never, I don't think I ran more than 10 miles my entire life before this summer. And that month, that first month I ran, I think I ran 56 miles in 30 days, which is, you know, that's pretty incredible for me. Like that was like something that was pretty insane. Um, and then I actually got running shoes and I actually got like gear that was like helpful. And I ran like two more months and I did 54 miles and then the last month we did a fundraiser, the No Kid Hungry fundraiser, where we ran to um, just raise funds for No Kid Hungry, you know, people who are hungry in the pandemic, specifically children. We raised over two grand for them, and we was just a bunch of cooks running. Um, but running for me was super cool because it was like cooking. It was something that I just needed to push forward. It was all about me. Running is all about you and your mental capacity to do it. Um, and it's like you hit a wall every time you run or I do and I would always hit this wall and I always come to this point where it was like you can stop now and you you can be happy that you ran but you wouldn't be happy that you didn't go as far as you maybe wanted to that day and sometimes I stopped and I would be like uh like you, you did good but you knew you could have done better and there was one day where, where I had just gone out of work there was really no rhyme or reason I just started running and that wall came and I was just like you know what I'm just gonna go through the wall today and like really like just go as far as I could and I actually ran eight miles that day and that was the most i'd ever ran this was like after work it was a late summer evening i like it took me almost two hours i think but I, I did eight miles and like that like really showed me that like you are capable physically of more than what you know running helped me a lot with like endurance and um just feeling better and you know i've been eating well and i've been able to maintain the weight but now, now i do have asthma so running now is difficult and i did get my wisdom teeth out so as soon as that that happened this happened in october i stopped running i've been doing nike training club the app which i think is really really underrated the bodyweight exercises on there are insane um and i'm and i'm in no way like i don't have a six-pack i still have a long way to go i'm still kind of in like that dad bod type phase but i'm so much healthier and i'm so much more happy with how i look and i'm able to do more um and i think that's like really important and so yeah i mean that was the kind of the health and fitness journey Good for you, man. That's the, the the note that I took that I that I really want to touch on people because I know that I know the people who are listening to this. I, I I want you to speak a little bit more about the not eating after service thing because that was also something that I would do quite a bit. Only because like even speaking from a time perspective, like if you have a staff meal at four and you get out of work at eleven, you know, like that's seven hours of not eating anything, and that's you know quite a long time to go before. You know, if you're going to sleep after that and then wake up the next morning, uh, that's a long time to go without eating. But I can only imagine, yeah. and you can touch on this because I've experimented with it a few times, but like how long did it take after stopping eating after service, after work? Did your body actually get used to it? Because in the same way that you're talking about the first few times that you go running sucking, the first times that you don't eat after service is also going to suck but the body has a fascinating way of like adapting and you know oh this is the new normal like i'm just not gonna be that hungry anymore i'm gonna wait because i know that i'm gonna get calories you know later in the because it's also such a shitty way to set you up for a night of sleep is to like eat mm. and then crash like your sleep is horrible and i didn't understand that until i started wearing uh, this ring to like monitor my sleep and if I drink within 60 
120 minutes with going to bed, and if I eat within two hours, especially of going to bed, the ring calls me out for it. Like it, it, it's not even a question. It doesn't say like, oh, did you like have nightmares last night? Because it has other prompts that'll tell me in the app of like why I didn't sleep well. But it will specifically tell me, did you eat too close to bedtime last night? Like it knows that I didn't, that I ate at a shitty time. And so it's like these carry on effects of like you're gaining weight, your sleep is shitty, uh, and it's like you're just not in a, in the in that all positive of a mental headspace like being able to control that for people might actually be like an easier lift for people that are listening rather than like oh well, I'm going to take up a running habit. So how long did it take until it got better <laughs> not eating after service? Yeah, there's a couple of things in there that I know that you kind of jogged my memory, but I guess I'll start with the service thing is that um so like every night I would come home right so when I would come, was coming home from service, I always say the be- one of the best meals I ever had was coming home after a 12-hour shift, stopped at Taco Bell. I got Dorito Locos Taco, Gordita Crunch, and a BT5 layer burrito, and I ate it on the, literally the five-minute drive home. It was amazing. Everything hit so well. Um, so if I didn't do that, I would go home, and immediately I would go to the fridge, and I would like there would be leftover pizza, or there would be chips and you know French onion dip or whatever. Um, so I would, I would go eat that. Um, I remember like, when I... So I've done like a lot of reading. I don't know. I know in my head it makes sense. And I know I've read science on it to make it make sense to, to enough to scare me to not do it. But basically, like you were saying, like eating before you go to bed is really bad uh, for your body. And I guess the simplest thing that I read that really made sense for me is, you know, we give our we always say, like, we need to give our bodies a break or we need to give our body a rest. We sleep so we get rest. But when you're eating late at night, you're not giving your stomach a chance to rest. You're not giving your digestive tract ever a chance to rest and when you like think about it that way like sometimes i'll fast until noon after not eating after eight just, just to, like and i feel better after that because it's like you need to give your your digestion like time to, to relax a little bit and not always be shoving literally shit through because like it, after a while it like i don't know like i just read that it's not good for you so i getting back to your question so what i would do is i would come home and i would drink a glass of water and i feel like that that would instantly hit like the 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 almost full mechanism for me um and something i adopted well in the beginning i just went straight no eating so i the last thing i would eat i would eat like a salad or something small at work maybe if i had a really late night maybe push it to 10 and i would eat like a sandwich or something that was like filling like i didn't need to go eat like we always had hollandaise sauce i didn't need to go eat potatoes with hollandaise sauce after the end of service you know so Having a smart meal, I, like I would not eat, I would not like stop eating at four. Like I would eat something before service ended, and but I wouldn't eat something like when I got home. So if you are in a situation where like you are able to eat while you're at service, I think that you should do that. Like if you can eat something after service is done, instead of eating at home, it just gives some time. But if you do need to eat at home, eating something that's like healthy or small, just enough to like get you there. But so after I would eat at like eight or nine come home open the fridge look at everything and i would just close the fridge and i went back to my room and i also didn't drink either like i would always like drink a beer or something so it would just be straight water um and i just did that for like a week and you just set a goal for, i just had a goal for myself do it for a week say i i feel so for a week i just didn't eat anything after service and honestly like you just have to get honest with yourself and you have to have these ugly conversations with yourself is like for me it was like you know like you're overweight you hate how you look for years like 
you, you don't need to eat, Ray. And I would always like just have that conversation with myself. And that really was like, because I was angry. I was, I was hungry. I wanted to eat something. So, but it literally like after a week, literally, it took literally a week and then my body was fine with it. Until the day I left for New York City, I still, every time I went home, would go into the fridge and look out of, like, it was some, that was a habit I couldn't break. I literally, as soon as I walked through the door, it was right to the fridge. I would just look. But then it was almost like, haha, I'm not eating any of that good looking food in there tonight. Um, but I do think like now have gone now having gone through it, a big, big thing that helped me, a, a big food that helped me was dark chocolate. So when I was managing restaurants for, for the last year and a half, I would always have either two things at night. I would always end it on a sweet note. I would always have a, like a couple pieces of really like dark chocolate, 70 to 80%. Or my favorite thing are these, it's called outshine bars. They're like frozen coconut bars. Interesting. And the, I would have like one of those. Yeah. Yeah. They're like 80, I think they're 80 calories. They're just the right amount. I would have it at like eight thirty nine o'clock. It would be fine. Um, and then the last thing you touched on was sleep. I was in a really interesting position where I was opening kitchens. So I'd have to be to work at five thirty, five fifteen, or like six, seven. Um, but I really do think having a bedtime does matter. I would always be in bed by 10. 10 30 the max even now when i work i i when i'm working the next day i get to bed by 10 to 10 30 because sleep is so important to kind of build when you're tired you can't think right and i feel like for me when i'm tired i just give into things a lot easier such as food bad you know bad cravings or what have you so yeah i'm definitely like the biggest things is like having that small go-to at night i think is important if you do need to eat um not starving yourself but also realizing that you'll be fine to not eat that night and you'll make it to the morning and that like it's the biggest thing that i didn't touch upon which i'm surprised i didn't it is normal to be hungry and i think from my whole entire life up until like two years ago i thought it was unokay to be hungry not starving but like hungry so it's okay to be hungry you're going to eat eventually so like that was the biggest thing you can be hungry that is a normal human being feeling so yeah that's kind of how it changed for me should make that as a t-shirt as part of your next challenge uh, with <laughs> yeah. all that. I mean, so the the biggest point that I can empathize with on, on the stuff you just spoke on was like, I haven't struggled with weight personally in my, in my life, but anyone who's kind of like been out to eat with me knows that even if we've just like completely crushed a meal, I can still obliterate a dessert. And it, even if I'm cooking at home, like <laughs> I've just made like, a big bowl of pasta, like you're saying. And like, even if I'm full, I can still crush a full size candy bar, or, you know, they're like two chocolate chip cookies or whatever. Like my sweet tooth is so massive. And that dark chocolate, uh, tip or like eat using dark chocolate as a substitute for like the normal sweet that you're going to reach for is like, I don't know what it is, man. There's something in that. That's just like magical. It just like com- completely curbs the, the craving. And it's also like, you don't feel like a gloat at the end of uh, the meal. And I don't know, that's really like helped me with, you know, not eating so many sweets. Cause it's just like, I love sweets. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I can't, there's, there's no other way around it. Um, but well, yeah. it's sweet, but it's also bitter. And I think that bitterness, yeah. it's like a punctuation mark of... for your body. Like yeah. your body knows like that that's the end. Um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Well, that I'm, and peanut butter, too. Yeah. Peanut butter is a big one. Yeah. Because that's, it's like, it's sweet, but it's so, it's also, like, savory and, like, it's, like, fatty. And so, like, it's almost 
it's like umami with peanuts, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you have that, it's like a nice ending point, and you don't really need to go anywhere else with it. But when you have something super sweet, I feel like it's like even the coconut has some sort of that like savoryness to it. But like when it's something super sweet, like a Kit Kat or like a you know whatever, like a Snickers, like it, it's just on a scale where you just want more and more and more. Yeah, you can just keep going. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I'm gonna get into some rapid fire questions, and then I'm gonna let you go as we kind of wrap up here. Uh, what um, is what is one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory or since we've last spoke? One thing I've changed my mind on. I'm thinking because there's a couple of things, but yeah, I think a big thing is that, that I don't know if I've changed. I think it's how I've changed my output on something. So yeah, yeah, I'll change my mind on it. Um, I've been reading a lot of like about stoicism. I know this is something we share an interest in like Ryan Holiday's writing and I'm currently reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I just ordered it for really, Kindle. I just I just got it like 2 days ago. Yeah, 2 days ago. It's brilliant. Um the best thing I changed my mind on is the idea and it's very hard to practice and I every day I fail at it, but there will be a day where I can master it is uh, I think Epictetus, I don't even I think he said it. It could have been Seneca. It's one of those guys basically said, and this isn't word for word, but basically said your entire world is the outcome of your perspective. And that like really hit me. Like literally everything I experience, everything I think, every emotion that runs through me is how I view it and how I react and let it affect me. Like there's no other, like I just, I don't know how to like put it into like words more than that. There's no other way to look at it other than everything is based on your reaction and your perception and perspective on everything that like for you, that's like life goes through your eyes and like, that's it. And so like realizing that helped me change my mind on like a lot of different things, but like help me change my mind. I'm like, Oh, like everything is in my control in a sense that I can control how I react to it. So that's what I've changed my mind on is I can control everything in my life. Not in a way that like, Oh, I'm moving the part but in a way of reaction. I think the reason that that resonates so much or hopefully will like impact people is because it shows in so many of your actions. And I think that so many of that has come up, like so much of that has come up in this interview between like you being willing to ask for the opportunity to write for plate or your weight loss accomplishments or like, you know, insert thing where you've actually taken the reins from this, like no one's going to come save me you know, kind of, kind of perspective. And like, I actually mm-hmm. have a reasonable amount of control over this. So I'm going to choose to act on it. I think that that's really powerful for people. Uh, let's see. Is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the kitchen? How much are you cooking these days? Also? Yeah, I'm cooking a lot with, um, I'm, I mean, I'm cooking more so now just for myself. Um, but technique you know, I think the, I think there's like a lot of things I'm so intimidated by. Um, I think a big thing that that I needed to work on more is beans. So maybe it's not a technique. So I'll do a technique then. But beans, no. I guess beans real quick. I yep. don't eat. I didn't eat a lot of beans. They're very versatile ingredient. So I've been working the ways into eating more beans, and so I guess that's an ingredient. I think a technique. That's intimidating. Still, is pasta. Um, I feel like every time I get really cocky when making pasta, I mess it up. And so with me, like pasta is definitely still intimidating, even though I try the most 
like dish I made out of anything else. When you say beans, you're talking about like dried legumes. Yes. Any yeah, dried legumes or just like canned yep. great white yep, yep, northern yep. beans. Sure, like, sure, sure. Oh, it's super versatile. I don't think I've asked you this before. Have I asked you this before? The the somehow you somehow get a call after this interview that you've just run an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant, and when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk to. I think I have. You you definitely said Bourdain. I think in your in your answer. Did right. you? I probably. I mean, or has it changed? Has it changed? It, has it there been someone right. that you've kind of like? Um, so maybe maybe here's the question: Is like you can have a meal with this person after you record a podcast interview with them, who is that guest that you've wanted to have on? Hmm, that is a good question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, obviously Bourdain would be someone. I think that would be interesting. Um, also to eat with to, the guy. To, to eat with the sure, guy but... would, yeah, would be ridiculous. So ridiculous. I think... I think my answer though would, would be my grandfather. Okay. I think it would be very cool, and not just because of like a nostalgic thing, but more so it would be he because he was a chef as well. He was a chef in the navy. I think it would be very cool to like actually have the conversation in like sh- in like the language of chefs and cooks with him that I never actually got to have with him. So I think that would be something that's cool. Is like to just be like, oh, like, I know what uh, Rue is, and I know what Hollandaise is is now like you know look at you know look at how we're cooking now you know what i mean so i think that would be a cool meal totally anything you want to leave people with uh obviously links to all of your stuff is going to be down below but if there's anything i i'm going to point people to read all of the stuff that you've just put out that we've kind of referenced in this because i think it's like really really valuable for people but if you have anything that's launching soon or you want to direct people towards yeah um nothing really like launching soon. I mean, I just came out with new merch. So if you go to linecooklots.com, you can buy a Linecook Nation mask or shirt. Um, but no, I mean, I, there's two things I want to leave people with. The first thing being that right now, I think it's very important, you know, in one person's humble opinion, someone, you know, 23 year old, I don't even know what I am anymore, just someone in the food industry. Um, it's, I really do think that we're going to have to adapt and that everyone listening to this at some point is going to, ha- with everything going on, someone's going to have a different job that's not in the kitchen. So be ready for it and embrace it and realize that you have so many different skills and assets and just abilities that translate well into different roles but like you were saying before and something i need to leave with it is like there's a difference between hard work and challenging work was so true because in my new roles i can't just go in and work hard 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 and things just happen i need to think i need to like take a step back take a moment maybe take a 15 minute break to actually think about what my next move is so the big thing is just be prepared for that and realize that like hard work isn't the only key to like getting things done. You can actually like not work as hard and we always joke work smart, not hard. Very few people I feel like in the industry practice that. And I feel like in the next few years, a lot of more people are going to need to. Second thing is thank you for having me on. Um, these conversations go so well. Um, I know you've, and I know you have also had a very, um, interesting past few months, you know, with everything going on, on, you know, congratulations on the you know marriage. I think that was you know it's so cool to see. So congrats on that. Thank you, thank you. But thanks for having me on, and thanks for yeah, of course. Thanks for keeping in touch with everything. You're like having conversations with you allow me to kind of reflect on things, and 
I know I don't see things that I do as like really great. I just like, like keep doing things and you always point out the things that I do well. And I'm really appreciative of that. And I also want to share that just like you, like your ability to like, your podcast is so different because you're able to tie in things that, that matter so much that I, that I know of because we, I feel like we follow the same circles, but not many people do. And I know when you tie in certain things and it just like, it's super cool to see that. It's super cool to like see you tie in so many different important aspects and make things relevant and just introduce different areas of thought that maybe a, sh- a cook or a chef didn't have. So just really appreciate the work you do, man. And thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure. And hearing that actually justifies the long like YouTube binge sessions that I'll go on where I'm like, why am I watching this stuff <laughs> about like, I don't know, foreign policy or importing, you know, goods from China or reading an article about psychology or mental models. And it's in service of helping this industry that you and I are so passionate about helping. And I'm always, I'm always grateful when, you know, the phone, the phone rings from Ray because I know that it's going to be like a very stimulating conversation. And we record these every couple of months for people to listen to, but I'm happy that this kind of like conversation relationship uh, continues outside of when the, the mics are on. So always, always grateful to have you on. Um, and yeah, if there's anything else I can do for you, please, please reach out. Let me know. Yeah, man. Thank you. It a ton. We did it. You're an outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normal where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here excuse me pardon me